My week started us off somewhat strange. I promised I wasn't going to watch the debates, and I did. And after watching the debates, I feel like I was able to clearly understand that if you are a Christian, you have no choice but to vote for... No, I got you right there. You see what I just did right there? I saw all your faces, every one of you. Like, oh my goodness, he's doing it. No, I ain't doing that. That's not what's happening. What I did know after I watched the debates is what I already knew, but what hit me harder than ever before, and that is that our country is deeply divided. We live in a place where people, where the world is divided, maybe in a way that many of us haven't seen before. And really, we shouldn't be surprised by that, because that's what sin does. Sin divides us. Sin fragments society. It leads us to isolate from one another. And this is what we're seeing play out in the world right now. What's unfortunate is that too often the church looks like the world as we run to our corners on opposite sides of whatever issue it is that divides us. And in that way, we, we look no different than the world. The good news for us, and the reason that the church is to be different, is because we have the gospel and the gospel does the opposite of what sin does. The gospel restores us. It unites us. Yes, your faith is highly personal, but it's not just personal. The, your faith is never solely individualized. In scripture, when God speaks to his people, he always speaks of a family, a tribe, a nation, and a church. Revelation was written in this context. It was written to the church, to the people of God. Today's text was written specifically to be read aloud in the context of the local church, just as Dustin just did. This is because the greatest threat to the church has never been outside forces. Now, social media, whatever news of your choice would lead you to believe otherwise— there are certainly outward threats to the local church, but outside forces have never done the most harm to the local church. In fact, when outside forces are at their highest in history, tends to be when the church has blossomed the most because the greatest threat to the local church has always been internal. It's the temptation to compromise with the world and thus to devalue the word of God and the glory of Christ. And that's where we find the church in Pergamum today. We see that this letter is written to the church in Pergamum, this exact address here. And this is the third of the seven churches addressed. Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was home to a massive library, second only to Alexandria, Egypt. It was full of temples. The city was full of temples dedicated to false gods, including the temple of Zeus. It was a city steeped in religion, but void of the gospel. And the primary religion was the worship of government. The city boasted three temples dedicated to the emperor. And in 29 BC, it became the first city to be allowed to build a temple dedicated to a living emperor. And because of the, these factors, the church in Pergamum faced many challenges from the outside. But her greatest challenge remained within. The summary of our text today, as we dive into verse 12, is that churches and individual believers 
are continually encouraged and even tempted to compromise with the world, both theologically and ethically, yet true believers of Christ will remain faithful to the end and will receive the reward of eternal life from King Jesus. Will you pray with me and then we'll dive into verse 12. Father, thank you for being a good king. You're a king who throughout the ages we can constantly trust in for protection and look to for example. Throughout all the countries, all the times in our history, you have always remained faithful and you have never ceased to be faithful to your church. Lord, might we take great hope in that? Might we give our lives accordingly that they would glorify you and glorify your abundant faithfulness? Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your word. Lord, help us to see clearly ways that we might be tempted to compromise in our own life. Might this never be said of our church by the power of the Spirit. I beg this of you and ask you um, to see this through even as you, you work in our hearts today. I ask these things in the good name of King Jesus. Amen. Verse 12 starts off, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So before Jesus begins to speak his word to the church, he wants to remind the church of who he is, referencing the vision that John just saw of Jesus. In this, he reminds us of a couple things. Number one, his judgments are true. He's about to speak his judgment, but first he wants to reiterate who he is that we might be reminded of the truth of his judgments. In chapter one, we saw a vision of the glorified Christ and we saw that from his mouth is a two-edged sword. And that is intentional and in that his sword, as we discussed, is his word. That his word comes from his mouth. And the fact that his word, that the sword comes directly from the mouth of Christ means that we can trust it above all things. It is true, infallible. It is our ultimate authority in all things coming directly from the mouth of the glorified Christ. The word of God demonstrates the perfect, just holiness of Jesus. It is his resume that he is reminding the church of who he is through his word. That in his word, we find the law. The standard of the Lord is good and his statutes preserve and redeem his people. The law of God is not merely to be endured. But it teaches us ways to walk in happiness and praise. As we prayed this morning, as we saw in the psalm, the, the law is good and it's a loving father showing his people the way to, to live better, to have happiness and joy in the midst of this world. His statutes redeem us, they restore us, they help point us towards Christ. Yet it's ultimately, while a standard we pursue, a standard we're unable to fully meet. And so, we rejoice in the gospel, which his word also contains. Not only does it show the standard and does it point us in the right direction, but the gospel is the evidence of God's grace in light of the fact that we can't keep that standard. The word of God declares the saving work of Jesus. The gospel is the means by which his merciful plan is revealed. That God so loved the world, he gave his only son, Jesus, 
to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there no longer be condemnation for those who are his, but everlasting joy. His judgments are true and his judgments are complete. Hebrews 4.12 references this two-edged sword. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is two-edged. It can destroy and it can redeem. The word of God, Jesus knows the true intentions of our heart. He goes through all the barriers that we put up and he's able to see us as we are and to see his church as it is. The sword of God is a sword of judgment for those who are proud, who see themselves un-in need of Jesus. Yet it's a symbol of protection for those who are meek and who trust in him. The word of the Lord, the sword of Christ, is thus to be revered above all other authority without exception. It is our guide, our hope, and our protection, even our protection from ourselves. Maybe mostly our protection from ourselves. We are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But his word brings me back. His, within this, I, I had a, a, an experience, I, I've been trying to, I've been started to enjoy mountain biking. And this week, for the first time ever in my life, I had to use the Compass app on my iPhone because I was convinced in the midst of the woods, having been on the trails by myself for a little bit, that I was going the right direction. And then inevitably, it's never happened to me before because I, I guess I'm, there's no, I'm no, I don't live in the wilderness, but I came across something I had obviously seen a while ago, and I had to use that compass and be turned rightly. My, my natural instincts had, they had betrayed me. And this is the truth of our, of our flesh. Our natural instincts, our flesh betray us. God's word is the compass that keeps us in the right direction, even when our heart is tempted and desires to go otherwise. Our Our just God, then in verse 13, after declaring who he is, he commends the church for her faithfulness. In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus and his grace And each of the addresses to the churches has first declared that which is good in them. And like a a, a loving guide, he encourages that which is good and to be valued before getting into that which must change. Here we see his word to Pergamum reminds us that we are not only to be faithful, but to be faithful in our context. Jesus is not unaware of the unique challenges that face the community where he has called us. He knows the unique details of this city. And he has placed this church, he has placed you here in this place based on that intimate knowledge of what is needed in this place. There are many views regarding the phrase where Satan dwells. Some think this term is used to point to the idols and shrines throughout the city. Others believe that this is specifically in reference to the altar of Zeus. This was a predominant 
place in the city. It's set up on a mountain and could be seen all throughout the city. And others believe that it's in reference to the imperial, imperial cult, that meaning the worship of the emperor. I think based on the entirety of Revelation, it seems likely that the third option is what is being referenced. Pergamum was obsessed with the love of the state. And I'm not talking about merely patriotism, but idolatry. They worshipped, built a temple to the emperor, treating him literally as a false god. And this conflict is a recurring theme that we're going to see throughout the Revelation. But the good news is that the church saw that which its city idolized and they resisted such. They continued to make much of Jesus. And like them, we must be faithful in our witness. The church had faced difficult days, yet some refused to forsake the name of Jesus even when it cost the life of one of their members. Very little is known about Antipas. It doesn't tell us much in Scripture. We only know that he died due to faithfulness and that the church continued to endure. There's a story in the province that teaches that Nero had him roasted inside of a brass bull, but that's not in Scripture. That's just histor- that's, that's what, a story that is told amongst uh, people in that region. But what we do know And maybe this is why John is is fairly vague because the title that Christ applies to him is enough. We do know that Jesus calls him faithful witness. You might remember, that term might sound familiar to you. And that's because in chapter one, verse five, that term faithful witness is the term used to describe Christ himself. The son honors the father in laying down his life in death. And Antipas honored Jesus by laying down his life in death, that he followed in the likeness of Jesus, laying down his life to the glory of the Lord who is worthy of it. These stakes feel far off as American Christians. However, we need to be reminded regularly that this is not far off for most of the world in which we live. 90% of all people in the world killed on the basis of their religious belief are Christians. Every year, between 100,000 and 150,000 Christians are killed throughout the world. And yet we live in a place where we decide whether or not we want to be with God's people based on is the music, what's the tune of the music? This is not a game. And we are reminded of that here. This is not a game in the world that we live in. Though we enjoy a freedom here, it is not prominent throughout most of the world. And the church remained faithful even when it cost the life of one whom they loved. While the churches, many in the church are commended for staying faithful, the church is condemned for its compromise. And verses 14 and 15 say this. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. While some in the church were faithful 
even when facing death. Jesus sees the heart of the church. He sees the bigger picture. He reveals that for many, this is not the case. There were those in the body who were willing to compromise with the world in order to avoid the scorn of the world, which they wanted nothing to do with. Few of Satan's tactics for rendering the church ineffective are as prominent as leading believers to compromise. And here's why, here's just a few reasons why compromise is so dangerous. Number one, compromise always happens slowly. It creeps in unnoticed. You compromise on a small theological moral issue, and it's very, the building of what you begin that opens the door to is slow. And by the time it gets large, it's out of control and you've lost sight of it. Compromise always includes lowering the standards. It includes making slightly less of God's word, slightly less of his authority, having slightly different, lowering the standards of what it means to follow Jesus slightly. But it always includes lowering the standards. And maybe the most dangerous of all, compromise always has the perception of being loving. Thus, it's usually accepted. Compromise is always presented as a loving thing. That we want to we, we, we be accepting. We want to be loving. We, so, so, so all truth must be, you know, like everything must be true. Whatever it feels good for you must be true because that's what the world says is the most loving thing to say. But Jesus warns us, we must not compromise our morality. This is what the church is guilty of. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who have taught Balak to put a stumbling block so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Jesus would have been blasted today for insinuating that a false teaching is just that, a false teaching. Not all teaching is true. Just because somebody is nice and holds to a religion that teaches other than God's word, that's great that they're nice. And you can love them, but what they believe is false and wrong and to be called such. This faction within the church wanted to be applauded by the world. They wanted to be considered open-minded and tolerant and progressive. And always, the compromise begins in regards to our morality. What was meant to be loving wasn't loving at all. They held to the teachings of Balaam. Numbers 25, 1 through 3, all the way back in the Old Testament, gives us a little glimpse of the teachings of Balaam. This was not something new to the people of God. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. They began following the lead of pagans and beginning, began taking part in pagan practices. It led God's people to compromise spiritually all the way back in Numbers and then again in the time of Revelation. I want you to notice a clear pattern here. God's people began to celebrate the idols of the culture and then slowly but surely they adopted their sexual ethics. Like, this hit me as I even consider the place wherein I live. 
They celebrated these idols, these people that were made much of. And then slowly but surely, they got away from what God had called to and began to change their sexual ethics to accommodate the voices of their day, the ones who were being looked to. In many ways, this sounds so much like America to me. We're so confused about who, what, the makeup of the family, about, how, you know, sex, about sexual practices, about morality, because we, we look, our culture has found idols that are attractive, that are beautiful, and that paint a great picture of what we would like to be. And we start with a worship of them, and then we slowly begin accepting their practices to be true, and it's slow, and it's compromised, and it creeps into the church. Once you begin to compromise your convictions, once your biblical morality begins to change and you begin to compromise, you will inevitably begin to deconstruct your theology slowly but surely. You will either disregard it or you will rework your theology to fit the desires of your heart. I can't, I can't, say with seriousness enough how how vast this truth is. I see it all the time. One starts off holding surely, surely, and rightly to the word of God until their heart desperately wants something else. Until a sin, an idol, entices them so that they either disregard God's word, God's word must be wrong because it's keeping me from what I want, Or what's even more dangerous, what I have pleaded even recently with faithful believers not to do is they begin to rework God's word. How can I make it fit that which I desire to do? I recently sat with a man who I would have called a great influence in my life at one time who was straying, being pulled towards sin, And he was doing just this. And I I begged of him, I would rather you just admit that you no longer want anything to do with God's word than begin to try to reconstruct and bend this thing around the truth of what you want. But we're always prone to do one or the other. When we begin to compromise, we must not compromise our theology. Verse 15 tells us that's what the church has done. You have some who also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the church has begun to compromise their theology. How do we, you know, these people kind of believe this, these people are are wrestling with this, instead of addressing it, pulling people back to the truth, we're just going to kind of let everybody believe what they want to believe. And we're not talking about open-handed issues here. We're talking about closed-handed issues. The, the, the truth of who Christ is, the sovereignty of God, the truth of his word. These are closed-handed issues that the church was allowing compromise on. A couple weeks ago, we discussed the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were the fad of the day throughout this region. Their teaching was very similar to the teachings of the followers of Balaam. Both philosophies encouraged embracing the desires of the flesh. The basic premise was, live as you like, all is well, do what makes you happy, and encourage everyone to do the same. In both belief systems, doctrine was of little value. And when doctrine is devalued, moral decline will always follow, guaranteed. 
thus leaving little noticeable difference between the body of Christ and the rest of the world. This is the greatest tactic of our enemy. He will aid us to attain the highest levels of worldly success, the masses of the crowd, and the delights of the eye. If only we will conform to the world where he reigns. This was the offer he made to Christ, and it's the offer he continually makes to every Christian and every church who follows after Jesus. The church is on the verge of death because the ways of the world had filled it and had dampened the flame stoked by the initial affection for Jesus. And out of a sincere love for his people, Jesus calls them lovingly but firmly to repentance. In verse 16, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. I want you to notice something. He says, I'll war against them. He's not, he doesn't just call out the people in the church who are holding to these wrong ideas. He has acknowledged that there are some in the church who this is, they're not guilty of this, but there are some in the church who are. And he's lumping them all in together. There is a, the reason we take membership so seriously, the reason uh, last month, we, a couple months ago, we stood the new members up here and we, we, we spoke and we prayed over them together was because on that day, those of you who are already members of this work were accepting, you acknowledged your responsibility to these people and theirs to you. Because we are a collective body responsible for what takes place amongst our people. Therefore, not acknowledging sin to a brother or sister, not speaking truth to a brother or sister, is not loving. It is the least loving thing you can do. We love one another by being committed to one another, speaking truth to one another, and pointing people towards Jesus. Any compromise that's allowed to take root amongst God's church devalues the church. The church is corrected here with this very warning. Christ warns us to repent. And this is aimed at the church collectively, not just the individuals. It's an outright command. This is not an idea to be considered, but a clear command from the mouth of King Jesus, repent. In his full glory, the one who the sharp two-edged sword comes out from his mouth, it says, repent. Turn from that which you have been doing wrong. And this command is not left to interpretation. The term therefore means that it is connected to what was just spoken of. So in regards to the false teaching, to the compromised morality, stop it. They are to repent to following this teaching because it contradicts the sword of his word. It contradicts what he's given us. And he says, if not, he warns what will take place. I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ loves his bride, and he'll fight for her, even and especially against those who desire to dishonor her from within. In the John MacArthur's commentary, 
on Revelation, he speaks of this verse in a way that I found beneficial. It says this, The church cannot tolerate evil in any form. To the boastful Corinthians proudly tolerating a man guilty of incest, Paul wrote, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the word of God. Neither is the goal of the church to provide an environment where unbelievers feel comfortable. It is to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so as to be saved. Gently, lovingly, graciously, yet firmly, unbelievers need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and God's gracious provision through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Error will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Today's non-confrontive church is largely repeating the error of the Pergamum church on a grand scale, and it faces the judgment of the Lord of the church. Make no mistake, the doors of the church, and I pray that the doors of our home, should be open and inviting to those who are far off from Jesus. But if you, being far off from Jesus, can hear his authority and not be moved and convicted, then you are not being saved. <laughs> like the work of the Lord is that reveal, God reveals himself in glory that we might be saved. And then he does his work in us that we might turn away from that which he's called us to turn away from. Not being willing to call sin, sin, is thus not loving. It is the least loving thing we can do. Well, the church is, is, is warned of this. And then in verse 17, the last verse of our text, the church is challenged by its reward. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Christ knows that what he is asking the church to do and what he asks of us, it is incredibly taxing. It is incredibly difficult to love one another in a way that is real and speaks truth. It's easy to have community based around a shared love for football or sewing or a city or, or social events or even social justice. Any of these things are easy to build community around. But to be a family... To be a family that's a community built around truth, that's committed to knowing one another as we actually are, to being transparent with one another, and to helping one another become more like Jesus, this is something entirely different. This is exhausting. This requires death to self and all of us. But Christ promises that he will nourish us. That if we do what he has called us to do, being the church he's called us to be, he will nourish us, providing special manna. Manna is reflective of the perfect provision of God in contrast to the poison food of false teaching. As I offer you something better. As costly as it'll be to cut yourself off from those who hold to false truth and won't turn from it, I have something better for you. There's a difference between food that numbs us and food that nourishes us and strengthens us. In John 6.35, 
Jesus makes clear which he is when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is better. He's better than all of the false things we hold to. And he will not only nourish us, but he promises he will receive us. He says, and I will give him a white stone. In the ancient world, the use of a white stone had many associations. A white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, evidence of of having been counted, or it could be a sign of acquittal in a court of law. Jesus may have one of any of these meanings in mind. We really don't know for sure. And perhaps John is intentionally vague regarding its meaning because no matter which of those it is, at the end of the day, the point is clear. It's an assurance of blessing from Jesus. It's an assurance that we have his blessing, that he will receive us and he will acknowledge us. Because on that stone, what we know about that stone is that there is a new name that nobody knows except the one who receives it. In the Old Testament, to know the name of God typically meant to enter into an intimate relationship with him. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. And this new name presents the final reward for the believer. It symbolized identification with the presence of Christ and his kingdom under his sovereign authority. In Greg Bale's commentary, he writes briefly, this new name, is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. As we close this morning and just consider the words of this text, the issue for the church in Pergamum is a combination of compromising with cultural values and also worshiping government, people, over God himself. Throughout the book of Revelation, you will see that the latter is a major theme of the book. And perhaps it is God's grace to us that we be reminded of this word and in the season in which we're in, when the church seems to be uniquely divided over worldly issues and and non-alike. In the midst of a season like this, I want us to just encourage you and remind you that this is not our home. That we are kingdom people. When the church in Pergamum desired to to take being the people of God and to combine it with worship of the government, it's kind of like mixing horse manure and ice cream. It doesn't really hurt the horse manure at all. Like the horse manure hasn't really changed. But the ice cream, it's toast. (laughs) Like it totally does, it does a lot more damage to the ice cream. And while that may be a crude example, that's, that's a picture of what's happening here in, in Pergamum. It didn't hurt the government. It, didn't, it only helped the emperor a little bit that the church was worshiping him. But it sure ruined the witness of the church and Christ's response as a result. We cannot turn back to Egypt where we will find God and country civil religion that suited the country more than God. Nor can we cry peace, peace when there is no peace with uh, with ideology that denies God's sovereignty over creation, including men and women and who we are made in his image. Because we believe in a God who raised the dead, we can be skeptical about the world we see while hopeful about the world that we will one day see. The city of God will one day triumph over the city of man. 
And because that, our allegiance is always first and foremost to King Jesus, who came to establish the kingdom of God as a radical alternative to all versions of the kingdom of the world. Russell Moore recently uh, provided some encouraging words when he said, it may be that America is not post-Christian at all. It may be that America is instead pre-Christian, a land that though often Christ-haunted has never known the power of the gospel yet. The church has always thrived in the midst of difficult days because Jesus has never been swayed by those days and he has never changed. This morning, I just want to encourage you with God's word not to be one who compromises, not to either side of whatever divide, not ever what, what radical side of whatever issue you find, would we be a people who seek Jesus? Would everything we believe be tested and affirmed by God's word and not by whatever the world wants us to believe, not by whatever social media algorithm has determined what will rile you up the most? Would what riles us up be our conviction to God's word? And would that lead us in all things as our ultimate authority? Would you pray to that end with me this morning? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us together to hold to your word, to worship you as you are abundantly worthy of. Lord, uh, as we are, we are prone to wander. And our wander can look very religious and it can look very opposite of religious. It can look very worldly. We can sin either way. We can sin, uh, God, we're, we're, we can sin in your church while being highly involved and we can live in sin having nothing to do with your church. We are, we are the older brother. We are the younger brother. God, would you be leading us to something very different by the power of the Spirit? Would we be guided by your word? And would the gospel that is revealed in your word, would it unite us as a people who outdo one another in showing honor? Even as we, we wrestle with day-to-day -day truths and realities and application, would we be able to wrestle with those things out of a, an abundance of love for one another because of the gospel that unites us? Holy Spirit, would you make that true? And would our witness be great because of that gospel unity? Would the world, would our neighbors look upon us and would they never be attracted to us because of compromise? Lord, would you shut the doors of our church before you allow us to grow through compromising your word? Instead, God, would they be drawn to the unique love that we have for one another? that allows us to speak truth, that allows us to remind one another not only of your grace, but of your law, that we know is for our good. And Lord, may we never believe that, that, that we can save ourselves through your law, but would we constantly receive your law as those who have been redeemed on the basis of grace and grace alone. God, teach us your ways as we prayed corporately to you. Would we celebrate your word and hold to it, and allow it to guide us in all things, even and especially in the midst of difficult days. I love you, and thank you for being a good king. I pray these things in your good name. Amen.